Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Before we do open up the word uh, this morning, um, I just wanted to read a little portion of scripture and then we're going to get into it. So if you do have your Bible open um, or a Bible with you, either on your phone, your device or a you know, hard copy, um, please open it up. Matthew 5 and verse 27. Uh, Just a few verses and then we'll get into the word. Um, I thought I should mention as well, um, for those of you who don't know, um, I'm married. I'm married to Adele, who actually isn't here today, unfortunately. She is, I think, somewhere like at the Women's and Kids, having a COVID test done, like a swab up her nose or something like that. So so stay away from me, you know. Like I'm I'm like her, we're one flesh. So, you know, steer clear. Um, But uh, yeah, anyway, there you go. Uh, this is Jesus' Jesus' words. We'll get back to these in a moment or two, but uh, let me just read these words, and then we'll pray. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And you're like, what church have I come to today? You know, it's crazy, hell chopping things off and things like that, but we're going to get back to that in a minute. Uh, Let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, and we praise you that it is a good word, life-giving, life-transforming, and Lord, in your word we meet you, our maker, our saviour, our redeemer, and our forever Lord. We, We pray, Lord, this morning as we continue in our series in the Ten Commandments, Lord, that you would... Uh, Help us, Father, to hear you speak to us. Father, that all the distractions of the world around us, Father, you would help us to push those away with the help of your Spirit. Help us to to see Jesus this morning. Father, help us to, to hear Jesus this morning. And Father, by your Spirit and through your Word, help us to love Jesus this morning. And in the power of your Spirit, live for him, love like him, for our joy, for the good of our neighbors, and Lord, ultimately for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, we are um, in this series of the, in the Ten Commandments. We've called it The Good Life, and we're up to point number seven. Uh, last week, we were in murder, do not murder. This week, we come to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, which is simply this, you shall not commit adultery. It's a very simple command. In fact, in the Hebrew, right, in the original language of the Old Testament, it's just two words, no adultery, which doesn't really give you much wiggle room, does it? Like, you know, don't have much to play with there. Um, We generally understand what the word no means. We generally understand what the word adultery means. You put them together, the command is no adultery. It's pretty much on the same level as no murder that we looked at last week and what we're going to look at next week, no stealing. So what's there to say about it? I have a confession to make um, in that this, over the past couple of weeks as I've been thinking about this particular sermon, I 
got to about Wednesday of this week and I, I said to Adele, um, Adele, I came home from work and, and Adele said, how are you going? Like, and I said, oh, not really good. She said, why not? And I said, oh, well, I've been, been trying to write this sermon on adultery and I, I'm not finding, I'm finding it hard to make it entertaining, you know. And Adele's like, what do you mean, entertaining? And I said, well, you know, like, you know, this is a confession, right? Like, sometimes I feel like, you know, when you're preparing a talk, it should be sort of been entertaining, it should kind of captivate the audience and make people listen and want to listen. And Adele's like, but you're talking about adultery. <laughs> and I said, yeah, good point. That's just a flag, right, that this is a pretty serious topic uh, today. And um, even, you know, and that's a confession, right? I, the Word of God is wonderful and beautiful. It's not meant to be just simply entertaining, but it's a pretty heavy subject. So what's there to say about no adultery? Well, firstly, it's a command that assumes marriage, right? Um, God created man and woman to be united. The two become one, become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, um, that humanity may be increased. Uh, the command is um, get married, become one flesh, and then fill the earth, multiply. That's the command. Marriage of two families becomes into one, right? It's not just to have sex. It's not just to make babies. It was to be a permanent thing. Leaving father and mother, cleaving you know, to your wife, cleaving to your husband, making a new family. And it was all undertaken by a contract, by a covenant. And the concept of marriage was a lifelong monogamy. Really simple. And the reality is, the scriptures tell us that it is God who joins these people, a man and a woman, together. He does it himself. It's marriage. Now, adultery, right, that it is to break out of that unity or it is to break into that unity from the outside. It is to enter into sexual relationships with somebody who is not your wife or is not your husband. Actually, who is somebody else's wife or somebody else's husband. Technically, right, this is all a bit sort of like, you know, words and meanings of words, but technically fornication, sounds a bit ancient and antiquated, doesn't it? Technically fornication, when you come across that in the Bible, is to have sex where neither party is married. Adultery is to have sex where either party is married to someone else. In the Old Testament law, those two things were differentiated, right? So those who had sex where neither people were married, they were to, to get married. That's what the law said. But those who commit adultery were to be stoned to death. Why? Why? What's the rationale for this command? You shall not commit adultery. Why is there such a, a hang-up in the Bible about sex, as some people seem to kind of claim? Is this some kind of repressive, oppressive kind of guilt trip that we as Christians are supposed to be on? Are these just arbitrary laws and rules that we're supposed to keep because, well, you know, a bit like rules that, according to how you play chess or Monopoly and things like that? Well, to find the rationale, we have to go back to God's good purpose for sex and for marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Because you know, what I want you to see is that adultery was wrong and considered a sin by God way before the Ten Commandments were actually given, right? Um, so the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, as we should have ought to know them, the Ten Commandments were, commandments were given to God's rescued, redeemed, delivered from slavery in Egypt people, 
right? That's, that's, that was the, that's the context. You flop open Exodus chapter 20, the Lord speaks. This is the word of the Lord to a people who I've just brought out of the land of slavery and I've now taken you to the promised land. That's the context. Remember, grace comes before the law. Salvation comes before obedience. Got to get that order right. But adultery, right, was considered a problem before the Ten Commandments were given. So if you wind the clock back 400 years earlier to a guy named Joseph, who you read about in the book of Genesis, when Israel was just going into Egypt, remember the Ten Commandments are given as as Israel comes out of Egypt, Joseph recognised that adultery was wrong. It was a sin against God, as he puts it. You see, God's purpose in creating humanity was to place Jesus Christ as King and Lord of a redeemed mankind, as the heir of brothers and sisters conformed to the image of Jesus. So humanity was created for Jesus. We were made for Jesus, as the bride is made for the groom. So God creates his people. It was not, it was not God's intention to create two humanities, but one Not a divided humanity, but a a united humanity, all brought underneath Christ. And so he created a man and a woman, and together in his image, they are united in order to reproduce. So ultimately, everybody is related to everyone else, so there is one humanity. And if you think about that, right, this is utterly anti-racist. When the Europeans first arrived on this land... It was the Christians who defended the first peoples on the grounds that the, of the early passages of Genesis that we are all one blood, we are all one humanity. Humans, whoever they are, wherever they are from, are created by God in his image and are therefore worthy of dignity and respect and they are of utmost value and worth, no matter who you are, where you're from, what colour of your skin. That's what the first Christians knew when they came. Imperfect, but that's what they brought. So a man and a woman are united in marriage and together are in the image of God. The pattern of husband and wife woven into creation is reflected in our very nature as sexual beings. So sex is about procreation and unity. Both of those right, require relationship and permanence. Both require stability to succeed. Not only having children, but but raising them to follow Jesus, to be godly. Not only being sexually active, but being united by it. The act of sex in the marriage context is like glue that brings the two, the man and the woman, together. Keeps them together. So God's plan for marriage is quite clear. Reproductive unity doesn't sound very... Sexy, does it? But it is. There you go. It's reproductive unity. What's God's requirement for marriage, according to his word? Well, the answer is simple. To remain united with your spouse for life. That's the requirement. And so we contract with each other, right? We, we wed each other. We make solemn promises to to live with each other in such unity. And on the basis of that, we trust each other. And we trust each other to have children together. We trust each other to be one together. I've got three children, right? Nine, six, and three. And kids are a massive investment, right? Anyone have kids here and just come off the back of school holidays and your bank balance is kind of like zero, 
Like, I don't know what happened there, but you know, like we're now eating pasta only for dinner. We have nothing left. No, I'm not. Kids are a massive investment. Not, and I'm not just thinking about how much money children cost, by the way, and thankfully they're in the other room, but it's a lifetime they cost, yeah? No other creature or animal in the world takes as long to raise as a little person. The length of times it takes to raise a child is like 20 years. To raise a family, right? 30 plus years. The majority of a person's working life is spent in order to help raise a family, raise the lives of little kids. And so to enter into having children with someone also requires a considerable amount of trust in the other person, yeah? That they will be with you throughout the whole process. So marriage requires us to faithfully fulfill our promises that we too will be with them. We expect them to be with us. They expect us to be with them. This is the heart of what is meant by the word faith. Now that word faith, right, is, it's so abused in our world these days and in our country. I reckon we don't know how to talk to our watching world anymore about faith because our world around us has taken the word faith and morphed it into something that we don't actually agree with what it means, right? So for example, God's favourite atheist, Richard Dawkins, and all of his other atheist friends, they believe faith means superstition, Believing what we know ain't so, as the old Mark Twain once said. Believing the unbelievable. But that isn't what the Bible talks about, means about faith at all. If that's what the word means, superstition, believing in the unbelievable, well then we need a new word, yeah? Our government uses the word faith to mean religion, so they talk about faith communities. But faith is not important to Buddhism. Faith is an irrelevance to Hinduism. Faith has no part to play in New Age mysticism. It's a Judeo-Christian word coming from the concept of covenant and contract, which doesn't exist in Buddhism, doesn't exist in Hinduism, has nothing to do with New Age spirituality. Our God, the God of the Bible, made a covenant with his people, made a contract with his people, a contract with his people at Mount Sinai or Horeb, and so Yahweh is unlike any other gods of the ancient world. Our God gave his word and he keeps his word. Our God is not fickle, he is not deceitful, he's not moody, he's faithful. That's the God of the Bible. He keeps his word, he, he promises and he keeps his promises. He gave to the Israelites, right, these ten words, these ten commandments that they were called to keep as his chosen, grace-bought people. They had to be faithful to their promises to him. So Mount Sinai, right? Mount Sinai is like a wedding. It's like a wedding. So God said to his chosen people, Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what did Israel say? Anyone? No? No, they said yes. Yes, we will be your people, and you will be our God. And then, you know, well, this is what staggers me, right? God has just saved his people out of slavery in Egypt and has got them en route to freedom in the promised land, a land of milk and honey and flowing and beauty and relationship with God, right? And they've just, you know, God has said, I will be your God, you will be my people, if that's how God sounds. And then and they say, we will be your people and you'll be our God. Like, I don't know. And then while Moses is signing the, the wedding certificate, What's Israel doing? 
committing adultery on the honeymoon, making a golden calf. The God who rescued them, who says, be my people, I love you. They're down there being unfaithful. More on that in a minute. But Mount Sinai was like a wedding, like a husband committing to his wife and a wife committing to her husband. And there was this agreement made, this this contract drawn up between God and Israel. And here was born the rule of law, law, which has basically become the foundation for Western civilization since. Here also was born the centrality of faith, of, of covenant, of trust. For covenants and contracts and agreements all rely on faith. Trustworthy, reliable, honest, dependable, being faithful to your promises, keeping your word. Being faithful is having faith. You give your word, you keep your word, and your word is your bond. Faith is fulfilling your promises. It's trusting the other person's promises to you. And it lies at the basis of all healthy human relationships. If I can't trust you, then I can't have you as my friend. If you can't trust me, then you can't have me as your friend. Suspicion undermines relationships. Cynicism destroys friendship. When I can trust no one, I have no friends. If you doubt everything, you know nothing. If you doubt everybody, you have no friends. So God's requirement for marriage is giving your promises and keeping your promises, to live together in reproductive sexual unity. And this is actually the requirement of us, the church, the bride of Christ, who is betrothed to her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, she, us, the church, is to prepare for that great wedding day when Jesus returns and we are united to our husband. We are to prepare for that day by keeping ourselves from being seduced by another, by putting on the clothes of righteousness. See, holiness and and righteousness are the requirements of the members of the church, even here at City Light Church North Adelaide, in every area of our life. That means bringing all aspects of our lives under the lordship of Christ, especially in the area of marriage. Because marriage is a symbol of the relationship between Jesus and the church. You know, back in the days of the prophets in the Old Testament, um, Judah, another name for Israel, was the Old Testament kind of bride of Christ, and she was faithless. This is the people of God. They committed adultery in two ways. First, they committed adultery with other gods, and second, they committed adultery with one another. So as they went to the temple, they would worship other gods rather than Yahweh. And by doing that, they're committing adultery. For Yahweh was their God. Yahweh was their husband. And as they committed adultery with each other, so they were failing their commitment to be the people of God because God had said no adultery. So the heart of marriage, brothers and sisters, is not love. Of course, love is part of it, but the heart of marriage is faithfulness. Husband is to love his wife. The wife is to love her husband. But irrespective of love, they are both to be faithful to the promises they made to each other. God's method for marriage is covenantal faithfulness. 
and I think this is actually really out of keeping with our society and the culture around us. When we turn our back on God, we will surely and slowly lose the blessings that come from and are derived from God. And so having turned our back on God in the, of the God of the Bible in the middle of the 20th century, I think we're finding family life more and more challenging to sustain as we move into the 21st. I mean, think for a minute of a wedding. What is it that the man and the woman are promising in that ceremony? As I was preparing this sermon, I kept thinking about Naomi and Michael, actually. So I'm just going to talk to them right now, um, who happen to be engaged, by the way. Should we have... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Strange things happened during COVID. Yeah. Um, this unknown man from north came down and uh, she'd never met him before. No, that's not true. Um, um, he's great. No. <laughs> but what, what, when, a, when, a, when a man and a woman come and they're beautiful, they look great, they've never looked so hot, in, no, beautiful in their lives, um, what do they do? What are they promising? Well, you know, I've just got a little book which sort of, you know, we could use here, right? And um, I know, I'll just pick two silly names because I don't want to put too much pressure on these guys. But um, here's the consent, right? Here's what they do at the beginning. Like it says here, like, Freddie, will you take Jenny to be your wife, to live together according to God's law? Will you give her the honour due to her as your wife and forsaking all others, love and protect her as long as you both shall live, right? How do you answer how do, people, how do most people answer that? Most people say, I do, right? But that's not the question being asked, is it? That's not the question being asked. What's being asked? You know, do you love, you know, Freddie, do you love Jenny? Do you want to, do, you know, do you love her? Do you do this? That's not, the, it's, there's no do there. It is, will you? Will you? Not I do, it's I will I mean, you know, Freddie, you look at Freddie, you go, Freddie, do you love Jenny? Of course he loves Jenny. I mean, look how wonderful it is. The reality is, though, if you're in a church, right, or in a building and they're getting married, if you say, do you love her, there's probably about, because she looks so wonderful that day, there's probably about 20 men in the room going, yeah, I do. I love her. I do, I do, I do, I do. That's not the question. It's not the question, it's not the answer. The answer is I will, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, I will love her. Freddie, I will love Jenny. And so the vows go on, right? The vows. Freddie, in the presence of God, do you take Jenny to be your wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, as long as we both shall live? This is my solemn vow and promise. This is my solemn vow. This is my word to you. See, the nature of this married love is intentional love. It's not that I've fallen in love with you, you know, walked down the street and Freddie tripped over and fell in love with Jenny. That's not how it works. It's not what marriage is about. It is that I intend to love you. It's a choice irrespective of the conditions of life, whatever comes, I will still love you, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're well or sick, whether it's better or for worse. I will love you. Not only is it intentional, not only is it irrespective of the conditions of life, it is to the exclusion of all others. 
I will remain with you and no other. It is what is being promised. And not just for a time, but until death parts us. For the rest of this life, I'll be your husband. For the rest of this life, I will be your wife. And I reckon this is the only basis upon which you can safely have children. It's the only basis upon which you can safely and confidently give yourself to someone else wholly. It's total commitment or it's no commitment. They are the options. Partial commitment simply doesn't work. Not for him, not for her, not for your children. You see, I don't know if you're seeing this, but like adultery is just a really ex- an extreme form of unfaithfulness to these promises that are made. Because you're promising in marriage much, much, much more than simply sexual purity with your one partner for the rest of your life. But you're promising way more, aren't you? promise to to be yours for the rest of my life through thick or thin, through good times. I intend, I will love you no matter what. Failing to keep your promises is being unfaithful. It's not just that end point of adultery which is unfaithful. You see, the New Testament, right, is just as interested, just as interested in obedience to this command. It's not like this was a command, you know, back in the Old Testament and Jesus has come and he's jettisoned that and it's just like, boop, do whatever you like. You know, that's not true. In the New Testament, we see time and time again, these, there's these gospel-fueled imperatives that come out about being faithful. Paul writes to the, a really young church in the, in the city of Thessalonica, a really young church, probably a little bit like us, young, new Christians, pretty young in age. This is what he said. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control your own body and holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. The will of God for his grace-bought, mercy-saturated people is is their sanctification. Living for him, loving like him, growing to be more like Jesus and not being like the rest of the world, being set apart for him. Paul says, Don't be like the Gentiles, the rest of the world who don't know God. I mean, ours is a city, right? Ours is a society filled with people who don't know God. And so they don't know how to control their bodies. And and over time, I think we can easily kind of buy the lies of our culture. I read a book recently where there was a section about, you know, statistics about the media and and how sex is portrayed in the media, Um, Let me just read a quote for you. By the early 2000s, sounds a bit old, right? Because it only refers to TV. It should have like TV, Netflix, you know, everything. But by the early 2000s, primetime network TV entertainment offered sexual remarks or behaviours every four minutes. From their monitoring of network programs, Lewis, Harris and Associates estimate that the average viewer witnesses 14,000 sexual events annually And nearly all of these involve unmarried people. An analysis of one week of network prime time TV found that sexual intercourse was mentioned or intimated by unmarried couples 90 times and by married couples once. End of quote. 
like the normality, right? In our world, in our culture of, you know, which we pound our heads with, which we fill our head with. And this is not just, I mean, today it's not just TV, right? It's, it's streaming services. You know, it's everything. Like the normality of television that we pound our heads with, and the same is true for films, that is to say nothing of pornography. The normality of what we see is, is fornication and it's adultery. That's normal in our culture. Normal on our TVs, normal in our streaming. The abnormality is sex within marriage. Now, don't get me wrong, right? I don't even want to see sex within marriage on Netflix or on TV. Like, I'm not going, let's just, you know, like, even out that... I don't want that. Sex is for marriage, and marriage is for sex, and yet that's not part of the world's view. It would seem that sex is for people who aren't married to each other. We are being pounded. I don't know, that, this is like 20 odd years, this is probably 20 years ago. Pounded every four minutes, 14,000 times a year, with a false view of sexuality. And against that stands one commandment from the Almighty God no adultery. And they say we are the people obsessed with sex. Um, I've seen two movies um, during COVID, like the COVID time. Um, one was actually at the cinema, which was quite cool. Oh, sorry, two new movies. I've watched you know, the same movie millions of times. No, um, seen two movies. Uh, Escape, is it Escape from Pretoria, uh, which was a, a film that was actually shot here in South Australia, actually, at the Adelaide Jail, um, about sort of apartheid South Africa and things like that. Really interesting film. Um, I walked away, and one of, we sat down and had a chat about it. I said, there was no sex in that film. Like, I'm, please, I'm not a prude, by the way, but there was no sex. I was like, that's pretty interesting. And I watched another one the other day. Everyone seen, anyone seen Greyhound, the new movie by Tom Hanks? Yeah, I've seen it like seven times now. I have nothing to do with my life. Um, I, what, there's no sex in Greyhound. If, I mean, it's an awesome film. You should watch it, actually. You know, you know, when you're not reading the Bible, watch this film. No. Um, Great film. No, it was just interesting. But yet, our culture is just saturated with this. And it's portrayed as if you're a living human being, you should be having sex, and particularly if you're not married. But that's not the Bible's worldview. But I'm not here to sort of critique the world out there. Because we're God's people and we live by God's word. And so I just want to point us to, to three imperatives that the Bible points us to, the New Testament points us to. And the first one is this, love don't cause lust. Love don't cause lust. If you have your Bible open, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27 and to Jesus' words. This is Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. We've read the first bit of this, but verse 27 again. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, there is much I could say on these particular verses, but I'm not going to speak to it in detail. 
But just to, you know, that we, whenever we come across this passage in Matthew by Jesus where it says, you know, um, you must not commit adultery, but if you look lustfully at a woman, um, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Um, I don't want to go into this in detail. I can point you in directions to chase this through. But I just want to say, if you are, I'm going to speak as a man, if you are a man and you look at a woman who is particularly attractive, to look at that and to note the attractiveness of that woman, that is not a sin. It's not a sin. It's just merely observing the beauty of something that God has made. But if you take that further and you lust after that, if you desire after that, and if it causes you to sin, then that, that is a sin. That's really all I want to say on that. But I think it's really easy for us. There's, there's a Pharisee in all of us, right? It's really easy to rationalise our sin, to try and minimise its importance. I mean, adultery, right? You think adultery, it's not a crime like murder, I mean, we, we legislate against murder. It's not that antisocial, is it, adultery? It doesn't involve hate or to anger or malice. But friends, I want to say today that I think adultery is as antisocial as murder. It does destroy lives. Innocent lives. Lives of children on both sides, if there are children. Grandparents, uncles aunties, nephews, nieces. Society is torn apart by adultery. Notice Jesus' shocking words in verses 29 and 30, gouge out your eye, chop off your hand. He's not being literal. but He's saying, cut it off. Don't commit adultery. It's dramatic language. It's shocking language because of the shocking nature of what the issue is. You say, I haven't really committed adultery. We're not married. It's only fornication. We didn't go all the way. We can say it's not adultery. We're married. It's my sixth marriage and it's his seventh marriage. We're married. It's okay. As if serialising marriage is some way of avoiding adultery. Pharisees like us look for loopholes because we don't want to keep the law. Jesus makes it clear that lust is something in the heart. And if a lack of opportunity or a lack of courage is the only reason for your innocence, then your innocence is hypocrisy. The New Testament, right, like the Old, makes it clear that adultery is never, ever, ever loving. It's never loving. Our media, right? our film industry, our streaming services, they always say, oh, but they just fell in love. And because they fell in love, that just justifies it. You can't deny love. Of course you can. And of course you must. It is never loving to commit adultery. You are not loving her husband. You're not loving his wife, your own wife, your own husband. You are not loving the person you are committing adultery to. You are not loving their children, their parents, their family. There is nothing in society, in my opinion, more hate-filled than adultery. Do not confuse lust with love. They are very different things. Fall in lust by all means, but call it for what it is. It is not love. Paul, Romans chapter 13, he says this, For the commandments, 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If if you love, you will not murder. If you love, you will not steal. If you love, you will not commit adultery. The second thing the New Testament says here is that we are to honour marriage. We are not to defile marriage. Um, So the writer to the Hebrews says this, Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. We are to honour marriage, not belittle it, not to make it the butt of endless jokes, um, I haven't, can't remember, I, I'm hopeless at remembering jokes. I'm nothing like our brother Mark Ballas, who is like a repository of great jokes. But um, I, I heard a joke once, like something like, you know, marriage, the wedding day is like the third ring. It's the suffer ring. So you have, you know, you, you have the engagement ring, then there's the wedding ring, and now it's the suffer ring. It's a shocker, isn't it? I mean, don't use that one, Mark, by the way. Um, but... We are to honour marriage. And now I, want to, I want to say here as well, I think as a church, as Christians, we can elevate marriage a little bit too highly. We can idolise it, and that can have a damaging impact on the community, our church community, as if, you know, the marriage, they're the real human beings, and the unmarried, they're kind of less human. That, that is so ridiculous. Paul, if he heard that idea, he would just go, I'm going to sock it to you. Like, he would. Um, that's not right. But... We are to honour marriage, not belittle it. We are to keep it pure for your spouse and your spouse for you because God is the judge, Hebrews chapter 13. He knows what we're doing. He sees our acts and he hates the violence of unfaithfulness. And he warns adulterers as well. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why does he say that? Why does he say do not be deceived? Because there's a very high likelihood that we will be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice in this passage that adultery is not the only sin that is listed. There are others, yeah? Notice, secondly, there is no inheritance in the kingdom of God for those who commit these sins. Thirdly, notice you are not to be deceived. There are similar lists in Galatians 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul starts this by saying, do not be deceived. Why? Because the world, the flesh, and the devil is at us all the time in order to deceive us. In order to say, don't trust God's word. Don't live his way. There's a better way. What we must do then is honour marriage not defile it. And thirdly, the New Testament teaches us to marry, but don't sin. This is found in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul writes, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. 
In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. First thing I want you to note in that text is just how positive the Bible is towards sex. It basically says the only reason to stop having sex is to pray. There you go. That's my translation. Um, even though there are other things to do. But there's this tremendously positive thing about sex. The positive attitudes, though, about sex are about sex in marriage. Paul is not anti-sex. Paul is not anti-sexual pleasure. It's sex within marriage that is to be given and received and given and received and given and received freely. That's the beautiful vision that the Bible has for sex. Secondly, notice here the acceptance of a woman's sexual needs. The feminists discovered in the late 20th century what Bible-believing Christians have known since the first century. We've always known that women have sexual needs. We didn't need Germaine Greer in a pub in Sydney to tell us that. And thirdly, notice the concern for holiness. Paul's concern for holiness is more important than whether or not you're married. Paul's about holiness. Whether you're married or unmarried doesn't matter. What matters is that you are holy, living for Jesus, loving like Jesus, set apart for Jesus. That's what matters. That's really important. So actually, beyond anything to do with sex and adultery, it, it's, this is, Paul is just showing us the fundamental virtue of being faithful. I mean, saved by Jesus, I'm going to live for Jesus. Faithful to that. Giving your word, keeping your word, this is how we are to live. And so it means, as I close, that the past matters and the future matters. Past matters and the future matters. What do you do? What do you do if you've already committed adultery? You know, when, when we read and hear here that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God, does that mean it's over? You're hopeless, it's helpless. Perhaps, perhaps some of you, I don't know, everyone here, I don't know what's going on in your head and heart right now, but maybe there are some of us in this room right now who are feeling a bit offended. Maybe you're feeling alienated. Perhaps underneath both of those things are a feeling of guilt because of past sexual behaviour. And I've said that because of committing adultery, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. I said that because that's what the Bible says. When it comes to adultery, there are, there are three parties that need to be fixed. Three relationships or three sets of relationships that need to be fixed. First, there's God. The living God has been offended by your behaviour. But the wonderful truth is that he has already acted in love and mercy to fix up your past sins. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. I think it's coming up. You know, Paul has listed all those things, how you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you do this, this and that. He says that, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are washed by the blood of the Lamb. You are sanctified by grace, set apart, and you are justified, declared right with God through faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. What you've done in the past, the Lord Jesus Christ has died and risen again to wash you clean, to set you free and declare you right with him. Secondly, there are the persons or the people you've hurt. As a bare minimum, they deserve an apology. Your wife, the other woman, her husband, your children, their children, the parents. There's a lot of humble pie that needs to be eaten for the adulterer. And you know what? There's no assurance of forgiveness. There is assurance of forgiveness for those who genuinely humbly repent and come back to the Lord Jesus. But perhaps not with those you've hurt in this life. There may be many, many, many years before any trust can be re-established. It's not impossible. And thirdly, there's yourself. You need to get right within yourself. You need to deal with your self-centeredness, your pain, your guilt, your heart, turning back to God for forgiveness and asking the Lord by his Holy Spirit to renew you, to strengthen you. What about the future? That's how you deal with the past. What about the future? Well, for all of us, for all of us, right, whether we have committed adultery or not, must be people of our word. The Lord Jesus Christ calls us to be faithful, people of our promise, people who, when we give our word, we keep our word, come what may. It means we've got to be people who are trustworthy, someone that others can trust, someone, and that means being committed if you're married to your spouse, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health. For all of us, by the Holy Spirit, to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ who saved us, rescued us, and who one day we will see at that wedding banquet of the Lamb and we will enjoy him forever. May the Lord help us to serve him in faithfulness all of our days. And to make us more like Jesus, yeah? Who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's word to us today, no adultery. Be faithful. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray this morning, Lord, against self-deception. Help us, Lord, uh, to be honest with ourselves and perhaps with one or two others who we trust. Lord, help us this morning to confront and confess our sins. For, Lord, we don't want to get too close to adultery before it goes wrong. We don't want to get too close to sexual immorality before we make mistakes. For we ask this, not because our behaviour makes us right with you. We, we, we realise that we're right with you because of the person and work and the beautiful work of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. 
But we, we realise, Lord, afresh of the, the danger and the damage when we chase after things that we shouldn't chase after. Father, would we be able to be honest with one another in order that as a church we would be faithful, faithful in all of our relationships, faithful in marriage? And we do we ask this, Lord, for our joy, your glory, and, Lord, for the great good of being a powerful example to the watching world of how you love us and how you hold fast to rebels until heaven. We praise you for Jesus and for his faithfulness. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.